0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so let's get into it. We are going to start off, unfortunately, with a couple of obituaries. This first one is from the Obituary Notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 16, 2022. Jeannie K. Porus, 1942-2002, to Author Unknown. It is with a heavy heart. That we announce the passing of an amazing mother, wife, dental hygienist, educator, and all-around fun and loving person. After a 10-year battle with Alzheimer's, Jeannie Jeannie K. Porrush died peacefully in her sleep on 9-15-2022 at Regency Park, Oak Knoll Senior Center in Pasadena, California. She was 80 years old. She is survived by her husband, two children, and her sister. The... uh, the internment was at Mount Sinai Memorial Park in the Hollywood Hills. Jeannie was born uh, 7, 19, 1942 to Jack and Sylvia K and grew up with her younger sister, Barbara K. Dector in La Crescenta, California. After graduating from Glendale High School, Jeannie went on to do two years of lower division studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and then finished her bachelor's degree at the University of Southern California School of Dental Hygiene in June of 1964. In October of that year, uh, that same year, Jeannie married Alan Porush, and in 1967, she had her first child, David Porush. Two years after that, she had a daughter, Suzanne Porush. Jeannie successfully practiced dental hygiene for over 20 years. She was the president of the San Gabriel Valley Dental Hygiene Society and vice president of the State Dental Hygiene Society and very active in both groups. After over 20 years working in dental hygiene, Jeannie retired from the profession due to nerve damage in her elbow and went back to school at Cal State Los Angeles to earn an MFA in art as well as earning a teaching credential. She then started her second career as an educator. Jeannie taught dental hygiene at Pasadena City College and after several years became the director of PCC's dental hygiene program. After over 20 years of being an educator, Jeannie retired from teaching in 2010. After retiring, Jeannie returned to her passion in art and was an active artist in the community, uh, making her ceramics and painting in her shared studio. She also traveled the world with her husband, Alan. Jeannie will be very much missed by her family and her many friends. That was Jeannie K. Parrish, 1942-2022, to Author Unknown, from the Obituary Notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 16, 2022. Okay, we have another one from the Obituary Notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 18, 2022, Philip H. Rubin, DDS. June 9, 1938 to October 10, 2022, Author Unknown Dr. Philip Hurst Rubin, DDS, incredibly loving and gifted husband, father, grandfather, brother-in-law, uncle, mentor, and friend passed away peacefully at home on October 10, 1922 at the age of 84. Philip was born on June 9, 1938 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He graduated from the University of Pittsburgh in 1959 completing his undergraduate studies in three years. and Pitts Dental School in 1963 completed and completed postgraduate work at the University of Southern California Dental School. He practiced dentistry for almost 60 years, specializing in prosthodontics, and taught at USC's dental school, donating his time for over 25 years. After graduating from dental school, he served as a lieutenant in the United States Navy Dental Corps stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. In 1964, he married the love of his life, Elaine Kessier, who flew to Saigon to marry him. It was in Saigon where they began their life, which included the love of travel through the world. After Saigon, they were stationed in San Diego. Ultimately, Elaine and Phil moved to Los Angeles and were residents of Beverly Hills for over 50 years. Phil's second home was in his office at 9201 Sunset Boulevard, also for over 50 years. It was here overlooking the Hollywood Hills with his wife Elaine as the office manager that Phil created some of the most famous smiles on the small and big screen of Hollywood, but also those of writers, directors, composers, athletes, and the like. Phil became, uh, uh, Phil became known as the dentist to the stars. It was not who his patients were that made him known, but who he was. Caring, gentle, talented, an incredible conversationalist and storyteller. Many of his patients became lifelong friends. For many, he became their confidant. Phil and Elaine were adventurous travelers. Through the years together, they visited incredible places like the Arctic, India, Japan, China, uh, many, con- many countries in Africa, Russia, the Amazon, alaska the galapagos islands most of europe and countless trips to their uh, family favorite destinations of yosemite national park and maui phil also enjoyed countless antique car rallies with his 1910 buick throughout california and the lifelong dream of bringing his 1904 curve dash oldsmobile to participate with his son jason in the london the london to brighton car run in the uk became a reality it was Phil was a Renaissance man, multi-talented with vast interests. He collected antique cars. He could not be seen driving, a, he could often be seen uh, driving around Beverly Hills in them, spending countless hours restoring the cars himself. Loved the challenge of fixing or building just about anything. Devoured literature and non-fiction until the very end of his life. And loved art, science, history, the natural world, politics, finance, sports. And he was he was passionate about his Dodgers and Trojans. And, of course, the sealers. Bill's greatest gift and passion was mentoring others and impairing the work, eth- work, the work ethic and value of education at his core. He spent his years quietly taking people under his wing and derived great pleasure in watching them achieve their dreams. He was also a wonderful friend to many of his children's friends, enjoying uh, time welcoming them to his home, sharing sporting events together, camping, and river rafting over the years with them. Phil was philanthropic supporting various causes from cancer research to educational and Jewish charities, but it was the endless hours and generosity devoted to individually changing the lives of others that, uh, that was most important to him. Phil's greatest joy and priority were his children and grandchildren. He cherished nothing more than, uh, than time together, whether in Beverly Hills, New York, Mill Valley, or the annual family holiday in Maui. Phil will be deeply missed every day of his, uh, by his daughter, Jill Rubin Franco, and husband, Michael J. Franco of New York City, son, Dr. Jason Rubin, and wife, Bria Rubin of Mill Valley, California, grandchildren, Catherine and Lauren Franco, and Colin Ethan Reuben, as well as his sisters and brothers-in-law, as well as nieces and nephews. Funeral services were held on Wednesday, October 12th at Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary. In lieu of flowers, the family would appreciate contributions to the Marin Health Medical Center Department of the Emergency Department, www.mymarinhealth.org foundation. Select the Emergency Department or the Michael J. Fox Foundation, www.michaeljfox.org that was philip h rubin dds june 9 1938 to october 10 2022 author unknown from the obituary notices section of the los angeles times for tuesday october 18 2022 okay here is a little something from the sports section of the los angeles times for wednesday october 19 2022 ursay removing washington snyder has merit from times from staff and wire reports Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Ursay says there's merit to remove Dan Snyder as owner of the Washington Commanders, making him the first NFL owner to publicly state that his controversial counterparts should go. Snyder's status has been widely debated for years amid several scandals and investigations into workplace conduct in Washington. The league has been investigating allegations of sexual misconduct and financial impropriety. Removing Snyder would be unprecedented and requires 24 votes from the other owners. It's something we have to review. We have to look at all of the evidence and we have to be thorough and it's something that has to be given serious consideration," Ursa said Tuesday. I believe in the workplace uh, today, the standard that the Shield stands for in the NFL, that that you have to stand for that and protect that. I just think once owners talk about each other, they will arrive at the right decision. Unfortunately, I believe that's the road we probably need to go down and we just need to finish the investigation, but it's gravely concerning to me the things that have occurred there over the last 20 years. The commanders released a statement saying that the Snyder will not sell the team. That was Ursay, removing Washington's Snyder has merit from staff and wire reports out of the sports section of the Los Angeles Times Wednesday October 19, 2022. Okay, so now let's move on to some entertainment news. And here's a little something from the Parade section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 16, 2022. From the Walter Scott's Personality Parade section, Mystery Man by Walter Scott. Anthony Horowitz's best-selling novel, uh, Magpie Murders, is coming to Masterpiece October 16 on PBS in an adaptation that stars Leslie Manville. It's no secret that the prolific Man of Mystery 67 holds top honors in the UK, OBE, Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, and CBE, Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, for services services to literature. There are some fun facts about the writer and creator of the World War II series, Foyle's War. He wrote the screenplays for six episodes of the popular... Midsummer Murders series, which has been renewed for a 23rd season. His new series featuring Detective Hawthorne and a sidekick called Anthony Horowitz has three books so far. The Word is Murder, The Sentence is Death, and a, a Line to Kill. The Fourth, The Twist of a Knife, will be released on November 15. His mother introduced him to classic films, including Frankenstein and Dracula, and presented him with a human skull for his 13th birthday. He continued the legacy of the world's most dashing super-spy with the novels James Bond Trigger Mortis, 2015, Forever and a Day, 2018, and with A Mind to Kill, 2022, commissioned by the estate of Bond creator Ian Fleming. Horowitz is currently working on a 10-part TV mystery series, Night Bodies in a Mexican Morgue. That was Mystery Man by Walter Scott from the Walter Scott Personality Parade section. Out of the Parade section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 16, 2022. And now, here's something from the Calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 16, 2022. Paul Newman, for the record. A chance discovered leads to the star's dark, revealing new memoir, by Stuart Miller. Melissa Newman once told her father, Paul Newman, that Paul Newman that she imagined him standing in front of a giant billboard featuring a photo of his famous gorgeous face. But in her imagination, she said, the movie star himself stands beneath the photo, just a little person with a little sign saying, it's me, I'm here. That desire to be seen as his true self is at the heart of his posthumous memoir, Paul Newman, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. Filled with inner turmoil and self-doubt, much of it fueled by family dysfunction, the unusual release comes on the heels of the HBO docuseries The Last Movie Stars, which used a wider lens to explore the lives and loves of Newman and his wife Joanne Woodward. Both draw on the same remarkable cachet of interviews, material that a conflicted, Newman, uh, a conflicted Newman created then abandoned. In 1966, Newman asked his closest friend Stuart Stern, the screenwriter of Rebel Without a Cause to interview him, but also uh, to get family, friends, and colleagues to speak about him. Newman revealed the torment of an unhappy childhood that still held sway over him, talking as frankly about drinking and marital problems as he did about his work. He was trying to figure out how to get a better plate get to a better place, said Newman's youngest daughter, Clea Newman Soderland, who wrote the books afterward. Melissa wrote the foreword. It was a long internal journey, and the interviewers were a part of his process. And yet in 1991, Newman decided the journey was done. He destroyed the interview tapes. He lived an additional 17 years, dying shortly after Woodward, long sh- overshadowed, but an Oscar and Emmy winner himself, herself was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Gradually, Melissa Newman says Hollywood's golden couple faded from public conversation. The daughters decided to honor their mother with a documentary on her career. That project proved a tough sell until their childhood friend Emily Wachtel made an astonishing discovery, and then another. I was looking for archival materials and for the documentary, and in their laundry room I found a locked file cabinet, said Wachtel, who served as producer on the HBO series and shepherded the book into existence. She called a locksmith and discovered a lost treasure. Fourteen thousand pages of Stern's interviews with everyone, including John Huston, Sidney Lumet, Tom Cruise, and Newman's first wife, Jackie Witt W I T T E. Wachtel pitched it as a potential book, but a literary agent was hesitant. Still, the family friend kept digging through the archives, hoping it could be it could all be fodder for the documentary. Until she made her second find, transcripts of Newman's own conversations with Stern. I was in a storage unit. And there were two boxes that had been put there by movers that said P.N. history, Wachtel recalled. Nobody knew they existed. Stardalin believes her father saved the pages because he wanted the story told. Melissa Newman added that in the transcripts her father gave permission for their use, saying it would be nice to straighten up the record, and adding, with typical modesty, if there is any interest in a biography. That consent prompted them, after discussing it with their other three sisters, to pursue a book deal. Newman's son Scott died of a drug overdose in 1978, a loss explored in depth in the book. Armed with Newman's own words, Wachtel and the agent Hyde summoned to craft a book proposal, which prompted a bidding war. Knopf won the rights, and last summer, editor Peter Gethers, whose father had coincidentally written one of Newman's first live TV shows, brought on veteran journalist and publisher David Rosenthal to shape the pages into a narrative in six months. The pages of Paul existed only on paper and were not really organized. Rosenthal recalled, After reading through the material, he decided to tell Newman's story chronologically because his childhood informed everything about the damaged person he was. He almost had to, u- almost had to look away from the page because it was shockingly intimate. While the book might have fared better commercially with anecdotes about hanging with Robert Redford, the childhood trauma was more revealing. His voice is astonishing, Gether said. And when he said his mother viewed him merely as decoration, it was so potent and sad, it made my stomach hurt. Rosenthal wasn't given a page count, but he says the voluminous material lent itself to being relatively succinct. He mostly avoided duplicating stories, Newman, had told in major interviews. Instead, the Hollywood st- uh, stories were often more intimate, focusing, for example, on how Newman tried hard to impress Houston and was pushed to greater depths by Lumet. It feels like it cuts to the point all the way through, Gethers says. There's enough other material for more books, but I think this is depth definitive. The family approves uh, of the finished product. Yet family members freely discuss debates they had had along the way, and various quibbles that remain. While Melissa and Newman thought the book would be a lot longer, the daughters are pleased with the final result. We definitely made our thoughts known, says Soderlund. It was a good team effort, and you don't always get everything you want. One point the sisters, sisters pushed back on was the book's tone. The editors became entranced with the insecurity and doubt because it was so different from what people know or imagine, says Newman. They really minded the dark stuff, but there was a lot of other material uh, where he talked about process and making art. She added that Stern had pushed and prodded her father in the interviews which could make him a little grouchy, and that when he when the questions are removed, the tone seems a lot a little darker. She also would have preferred less material about her father handled, how her father handled Scott Newman's struggles. But she acknowledges it might help others. There's no per, uh, perfect way to navigate that evening with all the resources in the world, she said. It's messy, and everybody tries as hard as they can, and you still blame yourself. Sutherland said the, uh, the published reflections failed to convey how generous he was. It also misses his joy in doing funny things. He was a goofy guy with a terrible sense of humor. To better balance the book, the daughter successfully fought for the inclusion of more outside voices to show the light he was uh, emanating for a lot of other people. Newman said. Ultimately, uh, others others said the book shifted from 80 percent to 70 percent Newman in response to the feedback. It's important for people to realize that someone who is the epitome of cool and sexiness and confidence on the surface is also filled with self-doubt, but fights through it and succeeds anyway, Gether said. They want an honest book, but not one so slanted by his self-doubt that it wasn't accurate. I can't say I resisted. Sutherland had one other regret. She wishes all of Newman's daughters had been interviewed. It would have shown she believes how he worked really hard after that period of time to have a really meaningful relationship with us. She seeks to redress this in her afterward, writing that he evolved immensely in the last quarter of his life. He became more present and reveled in giving back. The finishing touch was finding the perfect cover. The art director brought in 20 images of Newman in the Hustler, Hud, and other films, Gethers recalled. Your reaction is just, this guy is so good looking. They were gorgeous, but there was a lack of intimacy in them. The sales and marketing team wanted a sexy cover, of course. But when Gethers saw an image of an older Newman with his hand covering uh, half his face, he knew immediately that was the money, the money shot. This is a man wary of revealing himself to his audience, but doing it anyway. Or perhaps a man who, having a fully revealed himself, is now trying to pull back or even a man looking inward as he did in the memoir, half eager and half afraid to see what he will find. On this choice, Melissa Newman fully agrees. It perfectly illustrates the contents. The photograph is also in black and white, which made it, Gether said, a fitting final tribute to Newman's quest to be seen for who he really was. Newman often felt Hollywood exploited his beautiful blue eyes. Sutherland said he would have appreciated a cover without them. He was so much more than his eyes and beautiful face. I think this picture shows that beautifully. That was Paul Newman, For the Record, by Stuart Miller, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 16, 2022. All right, and now here is something else from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 16, 2022. Life gets in the way, then leads the way. After focusing on memoirs, Danny Shapiro returns to fiction with Signal Fires, by Bethan Patrick. As my spouse navigates bumpy, rainy back roads in upstate New York, I try to keep uh, my smartphone pointed in the direction of the greatest number of bars. Writer Danny Shapiro appears on my tiny screen, composed and serene in the upstairs study of her Connecticut home with its shelf of books, Colorful Chassé, an artfully Chaotic Pinboard. Hello, Ann's husband, she says. We appreciate you. Thanks for your patience. Despite our communication glitches, the author is unfazed, ready to work with my messy schedule. Shapira has been making things look easy since her debut novel, Playing with Fire, was published in 1990. Weaving deftly between novels and memoirs, publishing essays on craft, teaching at home and abroad, and even, why not?, Running a podcast, the author seems to move with frictionless grace between worlds and mediums while the rest of us squint at our creative lives and wonder where we're going. And yet, as she soon confesses, she had to ditch her uh, witterly compass to break the longest dry spell of her career, at least in fiction. This month, Shapiro releases her first novel in 15 years, Signal Fires. This development is sure to excite the die-hard fan base she has built with her best-selling memoirs from 1998's Slow Motion to 2010's Devotion, and most recently, The Transformative Inheritance 2019, in which she tries a DNA kit as a lark only to discover that her beloved father was in fact not her biological dad. These memoirs have naturally uh, informed her fiction, especially as they have matured, which in her case means they have become more and more fragmented. I'm interested in the ways we don't experience time in, in a linear fashion, Shapiro says. Memory, for example, isn't linear. Imagination isn't linear. We're always walking around with all these versions of ourselves, bringing an inner crowd with us. I really wanted to find a way to do that in fiction. The task was easier said than done, although she has done it. Signal fires follows two neighboring families in Westchester County, New York, over the course of two decades, showing how an early tragedy ramifies into the future toward a later cataclysm. In a construction as delicate as needlework, But deceptively sturdy as one of Andy Goldworthy's stone walls, Shapiro shows in fiction what she spent decades teasing out in memoir. That our lives are ruled by subtle human connections we, we sometimes fail to understand because few of us are wholly plugged into the unseen forces that affect our lives. The relationship between Shapiro's memoirs and novels hasn't always been symbiotic. When she wrote slow motion about losing her father and nearly her mother to a car crash at twenty-three, I thought it was, it was a sort of curative for my fiction, meaning that some events that had happened in my life were part of haunting my, uh, part of haunting my fiction, and I wasn't going to be able to write the kind of fiction I wanted to until I had told that story as a memoir. Shapiro uh, wrote two novels before returning to nonfiction. It was not some kind of conscious decision to switch teams, she says. I was pulled back. It was as if I had been digging for something that was just slightly beyond my grasp until, in, until inheritance, after which I really had this feeling that that part of my life, the part of my body of work was complete. The toughest part of reaching the end of a rope is not knowing what comes next. Shapiro had an idea of her, uh, for her next novel, the core story of Waldo Schenkman, which begins around the turn of the 21st century. Over time, Waldo becomes enmeshed with a neighbor family, the Wilfs, who are still coping with the fatal crash of their street, uh, of their street decades earlier. Shapiro wrote about 120 pages, then shelved them. You could blame it on the pandemic, except the pandemic hadn't happened yet. Instead, Shapiro was dealing, dealing with the whims of fortune, good and ill. The bounty that came with inheritance, which led to a podcast about family secrets, followed the, by the calamity of the cancer that affi- uh, afflicted her husband, filmmaker Michael Maron. He is now cancer-free. And then, during the early days of the pandemic, Shapiro was cleaning out her office closet, trying to restore order among trash bags and piles of paper, when something made me sit down and reread this unfinished manuscript. The first lightning bolt came from the pandemic itself. What would have happened to Waldo, she wondered. What would it, what would he be doing in 2020? How would the pandemic have affected him and his family? She also thought about Theo Wilf, a, mem- a member of the other family. I really wanted glimpses of them. Shafira so paused for a moment. Do we all want glimpses, she continues. Just a moment of seeing a future for a child, for ourselves. It felt like a future moment for my characters, and that's uh, when I understood uh, what this novel wanted to be. That's the pandemic. That the pandemic would be a thin layer, and it would not take over, but that it would give a kind of breadth and depth and dimensions of the past. Yet still she struggled with the timeline she had already been learning to break in memoirs. She wanted to tell the story in reverse chronological order. But it wasn't cohering. The second lightning bolt came from a friend, a novelist who knew a few things about fragmentation, Jennifer Egan, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning time-jumping novel *In Stories: A Visit from the Goon Squad*. I'd ripped myself into a corner because I was married to the big idea. Shapiro says the backward timeline. She remembers exactly when uh, where she was. Talking with Egan on the phone in the car after dropping her son off a, p- uh, a piano lesson, when the novelist told her, "Chronology is boring. You're always screwing with time. You're allowed to throw it all up into a kind of a jumble." And this is where, finally, the author who has always projected control and pol- polish, whose memoirs felt deeply composed even as they fragmented, realized she really had to let let it. To, she really had to let go to embrace the mess of the world instead of trying to contain it. That abandon has filtered down even to the title. Shapiro, who has generally limited her social media activity in tweets like If you're on here, you're not writing, found her new title on Twitter. Usually when I'm on Twitter, something is not going right with my day, she says. Yet every once in a while, something um, amazing happens. On this particular morning, the poet Elia Kaminsky started a thread asking for pieces of poetry or prose that dealt with memory. One poem that came up was Morning by Carolyn Forche and the phrase single fires leapt out at me. I knew as soon as I read those words that they would work for a novel in which all the characters were connected to one another as if by invisible thread. It captured something about the ways we are all interconnected. Shapiro is beginning to sound almost like someone who believes in serendipity, or at least in the idea that we never know what, uh, what person, event or tweet is going to come into our lives and change us forever. "Has everything she's been, been through we've been through spawned Shapiro's most spiritual work? We don't necessarily know who we are encountering and why they mean something to us," she says. During the time I was writing this book, I discovered my father was someone else. My husband, Michael, was very sick, and then I recovered, and then recovered. Like everyone else, I went through many things. At the same time, after Inheritance came out, I was meeting thousands of people who shared a profound connection with my story. And finally, the pandemic taught us all on a global level what it is to be all in it together. If anything spiritual infuses my book, that's what it is. That was Life Gets in the Way, Then Leads the Way. By Bethann Patrick from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 16, 2022. Patrick is a freelance critic who tweets at the book maven. Okay, and now we have this final one here from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 16, 2022. Eliza Schlesinger gets down to funny business. Comic comic Sharp Humor cuts through the pages of new book, All Things Aside, by Morena Dewey. On a sunny private patio populated by trilling birds and brightly colored Acapulco chairs, Ilana Schlesinger nestles into a squashy outdoor couch sitting next to her rescue dog, Tian Fu. She's confident and casual, donning a t-shirt, jeans, high-top sneakers, and a baseball cap. Her low-key approachable demeanor belies her status as a celebrated writer and stand-up comic. Her second book, All Things Aside, and six Netflix special, Hot Forever, both came out last week. Since making her first major mark in stand-up, As the winner of NBC's Last Comic Standing in 2008, the Dallas Rays comic has become one of the most compelling voices on stage. She's also shown her authorial prowess with the publication of her first book, Girl Logic, in 2017, as well as her acting skills in the 2021 Netflix film, Good on Paper, in which she starred and wrote. Schlesinger even had an eponymous sketch show on the streaming giant, leading an ensemble cast and showcasing a new facet of her ever-evolving art form. Fans have even seen her and her comedy evolve from Party Goblin to a mother and voice of the elder millennial generation. I started doing specials in my 20s, so I talked about all the things that you should be talking about as a girl living in Los Angeles. Dating, drinking, all, that fun, all the fun things, she said. I carried that for a few specials, then in Confirmed, Uh, confirmed kills, it became less about making fun of us and more about defending women and explaining why we are the way we are. In Hot Forever, a nearly 40-year-old Schlesinger said she now focuses on material, on her material, on telling it like it is, keeping it as sharp as possible. I talk about how any experience as a woman, whether it's about gender, ethnicity, race, or sexuality, all of these narratives matter, she said. They help not only to color our lives, but to increase visibility of narratives that are not talked about as often. One of the narratives to which Schlesinger is referring to is her harrowing experience with a miscarriage. Discussed in detail in All Things Aside, she believes that by normalizing dialogue that shares our vulnerabilities, especially about women's health, that we in turn reduce the shame and stigma that surrounds it. As a writer and comedian, Schlesinger's goal is not only to be seen and heard herself, but for her fans to share in that validation. She wants inclusivity to span across all of her work. We are living in a time where you have all of these guys out there saying horrific things about women and building these massive followings off of darkness, anger, and hate, she says. I never want to meet that uh, with an equal amount of hate. I want to build something that inspires confidence. And that says the thing we feel in our hearts and minds. I want my I want to plant my flag and be like I'm here on the good side. I'm fighting for what's right. I want the men on our side who are good. And I want women to know I'm within. Schlesinger's stand-up, com, uh, stand-up and writing is not only impressive because of the vast array of topics she covers, but also for her immense intellect. In her 2018 special, Elder Millennial, she references a membrane, the translucent inner eyelid typically found in reptiles and birds. Her vast lexicon and emotional intelligence are also flexed in All Things Aside, where she shares stories on experiences as amusing as pooping while on magic mushrooms along with stories on heavier subjects like the futility of obtaining a restraining order against a stalker. But with these unapologetic thoughts, and the voice to say them, Comes the uh, anxiety faced by how many comics, by, faced by many comics. How will the audience react? Will they understand, or worse, misunderstand? In an era where wokeness and cancel culture have destroyed careers and people, sometimes rightfully so, and other times because of a misinterpreted joke, it is understandable that artists, especially ones whose craft relies on their own personal observations and opinions, feel nervous when creating creating new work. It's one thing to say you don't care about what people think, but actually, but actually not caring is a formidable challenge, though not impossible. I spent a lot of time on the internet, which can be good because you have your finger on the pulse of how society is feeling, she says. The bad thing is you can hear the comments section for everything, uh, that you, for everything you say before you even say it. When certain people comment, it's rare. it's rarely from a place of helpful critique I'm more of just wanting to see something burn. I have confidence, but the challenge was about my lack of confidence in the public's ability to understand the intention that I was so vulnerable of putting forth. I I allow, I allow that crippling fear to, sweep, to seep in, she continues. Then I thought, screw it, I'm just going to write from the heart. In the book, I don't apologize and I don't mince words. If it bothers you, just read another sentence. We have to be able to disagree in a moment and choose to move on. I think that our society looks for imperfections as a reason for completely writing something or someone off. The collection of essays, and all things aside, are rich with personal anecdotes, both heavy and light hearted, as well as Schlesinger's core values, which she hopes to impart on her readers. It's vibrant and entertaining, relatable and poignant, and above all, it's funny. Her voice is so eloquently translated from the stage to the page that it's impossible not to hear her narrating in your head. She makes fun of things she disdains, uplifts that which she reveres, and even points out her own shortcomings, as comics are wont to do. All things aside, she wrote from the heart, which is the only way to do it. First and foremost, I hope when people read All Things Aside, they laugh, she says. It's my job as a comedian, as a writer, to constantly check in with myself, my relation to society, and commenting on not just our culture, but on other commentators. I also hope that they find themselves in the pages. The whole reason we create art is to relate to people. At least that's why I do it. It makes us all feel a little less alone in a world that is becoming more divided. All I ever wanted to do. All I ever want is to constantly be evolving into better versions of myself while pushing my comfort levels, because that's what art is. That was Eliza Schlesinger Gets Down to Funny Business by Morena Duway. from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 16, 2022. All right, now here's a special article from albumism.com. And this is called Amy Winehouse's second and final album, Back to Black Turns 15, Anniversary Retrospective, October 23, 2021, by Patrick Corcoran. Happy 15th anniversary to Amy Winehouse's second and final studio album, Back to Black, originally released October 27, 2006. All I can ever be to you is a darkness that we knew. When we lose someone close to us, we choose to remember them in our own way. Maybe there's a particular moment indelibly carved in our consciousness or a solitary sparkle we remember them by. So it also goes when we lose artists in this media-driven world. A world where every tiny action is picked over, analyzed, and splashed over uh, the tabloid's covers or web pages. The late Amy Winehouse, who passed away at the age of 27 just over 10 years ago in July of 2011, had much more than her fair share of of that press' attention as they created a whirlwind of sensationalism around her, every perceived indiscretion, no matter how minuscule. Those same tabloids that were by turns fawning, disparaging, and dismissive of her as she battled her own personal issues in that most public of forums have picked over the bones of her life insistently since her untimely demise, leaving it up to the unsaturated onlooker to find that moment, that memory, to remember her by. My abiding memory of Amy Winehouse is to remember something so lacking in tragedy that it makes a mockery of what was to follow. Fifteen years ago, barely two months after the release of her career-defining second and final album, Back to Black, she performed at the Other Voices music series in Dingle County, Kerry in Ireland. A million miles from the tablet-riddled London scene she dominated, the small town became both ship and safe harbor for Winehouse. The concert saw her robbed of some of her backing band due to inclement weather and it became the vessel for a stripped-back performance that showcased the quality of the material and the charismatic presence of a star in the Ascendant. Whilst sheltered from the pressures of metropolitan life, the accompanying interview revealed an open, engaged, engaging, an open engaging, and opinionated artist who spoke passionately of the unadulterated joy that brought music, that music brought her. So that's whom I choose to remember. An artist hell bent on self-expression with killer songs to boot. And what songs Back to Black provided? Described by Winehouse as simpler structured songs with less crazy time sig- uh, signatures than her 2003 debut LP, Frank, it would be foolish to think that these songs were straightforward. Shot through with an unflinchingly honest lyricism and a lush Reverential production influenced by Winehouse's newly discovered love for soul music, in particular female vocal groups of the early 60s like the Shirelles, it offered up 11 songs of short, sharply felt genius. Such genius, though, often comes collaboratively, and here it was no different. Firstly, in uh, Salam, Remy and Mark Ronson, Winehouse found producers perfectly poised to create an entirely affectionate but contemporary sounding homage to soul tracks of the 1960s. Meanwhile, the band that played much of the music, the Dap Kings, created a pitch-perfect soul-review atmosphere, dripping with an undercurrent of Swamper's funk, perfect for the high-drama Winehouse concocted. What had lit up the preceding Frank again provided... Uh, the tension inside the sweetness but this time with even greater intensity the interplay between the sweet soul music and the acerbic profanity latin tales of heartbreak creates a dynamic frisson that never lets up witness the delightfully melodic self-sung backing vocals of me and mr jones crooning the bitter filthy dick to me refrain to the accompaniment of a swooning, waltzing melody that captured the essence of that dynamic tension Thematically, Winehouse mines a rich seam of heartbreak on bedrock of emotional defiance. Several times she refers to dried up tears, aside from the obvious tears dry on their own, leaving the listener in no doubt that emotional trauma will occur, but that rejuvenation is also just around the corner. That this shines through through only serves to double down on the tragedy that she herself would not get the chance to bounce back again Some months later. The self-admonishment of, you know I'm no good, the world-weary love is a losing game, and the heart the morose wake-up alone may be somewhat counterbalanced by the stand-by-your-manisms of some unholy war, but the overriding emotion is the pain of loss and the turmoil of love. Perhaps surprising in these days of endless songs and segues is the fact that from the punchy, shakily defiant Rehab to the breezily prescient Addicted, nothing overstays its welcome. The entire album is a little over 35 minutes long. Even the crescendo and album centerpiece Back to Black barely lasts 4 minutes. Such is the emotional heft of this song. It seems barely possible that it clocks in at just 241 seconds. As much as the sound of the album is classic, so is the brevity. After all, if it can't be said in a four-minute song, is it worth saying at all? With Back to Black, Emmy Winehouse revealed herself to be a master painter and the album was the exquisite creation. A picture stretched tight to reveal the naked, worn, and cracked canvas below. It's uncomfortable, raw, and resoundingly real It's soul music of the highest quality that will stand the test well beyond 15 years. And that was Amy Winehouse's second and final album, Back to Black Turns 15th Anniversary Retrospective, by Patrick Corcoran, from albumism.com, October 23rd, 2021. All right, and now here is something from JewishJournal.com. LA star Ryan Terrell, first Orthodox Jew drafted by an NBA G League team. Terrell, who attended Valley Torah High School and Yeshiva University, set scoring records throughout his tenure playing for the schools. By Harvey Farr, October 22, 2022. Ryan Terrell, the 23 year old 6'6 Valley Village, California basketball guard, was drafted 27th overall in the first round of the 2022 G League draft by the Motor City Cruise, the Detroit Pistons NBA G League affiliate. Terrell will become the first Orthodox Jewish player in the G League or an NBA franchise team. He will begin his professional career with the Crews on November 4th. I'm thrilled to become a member of the Detroit Pistons organizations and play for the Motor City Cruise," Terrell said in a statement. This is a dream come true for me, but it's only the start. The goal is to make the NBA. I appreciate the love and support of Jews worldwide that are rooting for me. It feels like we're in this together. Terrell, who attended Valley Torah High School and Yeshiva University, set scoring records throughout his tenure playing for the schools. Last season, he led the YU of Maccabees on a 50-game win streak that caught the attention of professional basketball teams, basketball scouts, and fans nationwide. While YU is a Division III-ranked school, and virtually all pro-basketball organizations draft from high-profile Division I universities, Terrell decided to stay true to his Jewish faith by continuing his Jewish education at YU. Although he received full scholarship offers from Division I universities, he ultimately selected YU, telling his parents, If I'm not going to continue my Jewish education, then why did you send me to Jewish schools all these years? Terrell plans to navigate a pro-basketball career while adhering to orthodoxy. He has said he plans to observe the Sabbath by walking to arenas for games that are scheduled on Shabbat and will adhere to a strict kosher diet. It's part of who I am, Terrell said to the journal. That's most important. According to Terrell, his biggest fans are his parents, as they said in a statement. The best part of all this is how much the Jewish community is rooting for Ryan's success. How proud we are of of him and how much joy his journey is bringing to so many people. The G League is the NBA minor league affiliate where players, coaches, and trainers develop their skills for a chance to play for an NBA team. Terrell is is represented by Mega Sports agents, Excel Sports Management. We are excited that the first step in Ryan's NBA journey will be in Detroit, Sam Goldfeder, one of Terrell's agents, said. Ryan's basketball path to this moment in time has not come easy. It took a lot of faith, grit, determination, and hard work, which happens to be the characteristics that the Pistons have always shown. Ryan is healthy, happy, eager, and ready to contribute to a winning season. Terrell was the leading scorer in YU history with 2,158 points, and basically through three full years of playing, COVID-19 created one seven-game season. And that was L.A. star Ryan Terrell, first Orthodox Jew drafted by an NBA G League team by Harvey Farr. uh, From JewishJournal.com, October 22nd, 2022. Okay, now here is something from ComicBook.com. Star Wars fans honor Carrie Fisher on what would have been her 66th birthday by Kofi Outlaw, October 21st, 2022. Star Wars fans are showing love and celebration to the late Carrie Fisher on this, what would have been her 66th birthday. Carrie Fisher was born on October 21st, uh, 1956. She passed away on December 27th, 2016, at the age of 60. Her mother, screen icon Debbie Reynolds, died one day later. Uh on December 28th. Fisher's legacy and presence have not diminished since her passing, quite the opposite in fact. Carrie Fisher's death has cemented her status as both a screen icon, activist, and celebrity personality outside of her screen roles. Whether it's the continuing popularity of Star Wars' Princess Leia, Fisher's semi-autobiographical writings, Postcards from the Edge, Wishful Drinking, The Princess diarist or the many, many memorable anecdotes she left behind in the minds of friends, family, fans, colleagues, it feels like we talk about uh, Carrie Fisher more now than we did in the later part of her life. Check the ways that Star Wars fans and beyond are celebrating Carrie Fisher on her birthday. Today we remember the legendary Carrie Fisher on her birthday. Andor uh, now uh, streaming... Remembering Carrie Fisher on her birthday, Star Wars UK. Official Star Wars social media accounts are all lighting up in celebration of Carrie Fisher's birthday as they should. Dana Duraney, in honor of Carrie Fisher's 66th birthday, here she is hosting SNL in 1978 in a sketch where Princess Leia lands in a 1960s beach movie. Humanoid History, Carrie Fisher born on this day in 1956. Carrie Fisher's birthday is unearthing some serious treasures from the archives, like this old 1970s SNL sketch, as well as all sorts of photos, interviews, and other videos. We'll be missed forever. Brian Herring, Zombie BB-8. Remembering Carrie Fisher, Born Today, 1956, Missed Forever. Art like this reminds us of just how many memorable Carrie Fisher's screen performances Carrie Fisher left us with beyond Star Wars. Comedy Assassin, Ming-Na Wen. This never gets old. Hashtag Carrie Fisher will always be my idol. I'm so grateful I got to meet her as she undressed me in front of an audience. All the right movies. At A.T. Wright Movies, Carrie Fisher was born on this day in 1956. Here she is taking hilarious swipes at George Lucas at his AFI Life Achievement Award in, 19- in 2005. Even new Star Wars icon Ming-Na Win, The Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, is loving this prime example of what a true comedic beast Carrie Fisher was. An inspiration. It was Rachapa all, all along, at Rachel Leishman. Carrie Fisher will forever and always be my hero. She made me feel seen as a writer, uh, has meant the world to me for as long as I can remember, and continues to inspire me daily. Miss you, Space Mom. Hashtag... Carrie on Fisher. Carrie Fisher lived her life as a woman living out loud, and will forever inspire new ger- generations of women to do the same. Uh, Thea continues. Miriam Skywalker. At Miriam Skywalker, Carrie Fisher would be will be so proud of Vivian Leah Blair performing as ten-year-old Leah in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Cara Fisher likely would, more so than anyone, love and support young Vivian Lyra Le- Blair taking over the young Leia role in Obi Wan Kenobi TV series. Mother and Daughter Neil Drysdale, at Neil Drysdale. Cara Fisher, born O.T.D. In-, in 1956. She became famous for Star Wars and Postcards from the Edge, but I always think there's something really poignant about this picture of her watching her mum, Debbie Reynolds. They both died within a day of one another six years ago. The proximity of the deaths of Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher has made their bond as iconic as each of their careers as entertaining. One of our faves, Carrie Fisher in a Rolling Stone photo shoot from 1983. This Rolling Stone cover photo is the epitome of Carrie Fisher. Sexy and beautiful, daring and somewhat between being wittily funny and bitingly insightful. The iconic and titillating Slave Leia outfit being used as an actual bathing suit in the midst of crazy heat waves crashing on her? Just think about it. Notable quotes. At Nathan Francis. Stay afraid, but do it anyway. What's important is the action. You don't have to wait to be confident. Just do it and eventually the confidence will follow. Hollywood legend, hashtag Carrie Fisher, actress and writer, postcards from the edge, was hashtag BOTD, 21 October 1956, hashtag Star Wars. Carrie Fisher's words have been not just as powerful as the imagery of her. Let's not forget that. She knew. At uh, Naberrier Films, Happy birthday to our Princess Leia. Carrie Fisher, we miss you. Carrie Fisher knew that she would never get out of the shadow of Princess Leia, no matter what how, uh, no, what awesome work she did thereafter. Clearly, she eventually came to embrace it. Otherwise, we would have never seen her in the Star Wars sequel trilogies. And that was... That was Star Wars fans honor Carrie Fisher on what would have been her 66th birthday by Kofi Altma from ComicBook.com, October 21st, 2020. 22 all right and now here is something from a site called polynews.org and this is called jared kushner's times square new york property reportedly moved a step closer toward foreclosure oh how the mighty fall by andrea thompson october uh, 23rd 2022 there's simply no denying that things have taken a turn for the worse for Donald Trump since leaving the presidency. In just a few weeks, he's been hit with numerous lawsuits. His tax returns and financial documents finally saw the light of day as the Manhattan District Attorney prepares to nail him to the wall, and reports are indicating that his properties, such as Trump Hotel, just aren't in good shape these days. But, according to a report from Bloomberg, Donald himself isn't the only one with some financial issues hovering on the horizon. The report reveals, according to loan documents, a Times Square retail property owned by Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner's family company, Kushner Cos, is on the brink of foreclosure and just got one step closer to tipping over the edge. A report filed by the trustee on the debt, Wells Fargo & Company, reads legal counsel has been engaged in foreclosure actions have been filed. The Bloomberg report notes that requests for comments from the representatives for Kushner Co's have yet to be met. According to the report, the building that sits at 229 West 43rd Street and used to house the New York Times is now at only about half its occupancy. In 2016, the building was appraised at a staggering $470 million dollars, a reappraisal in 2020 dropped that rate to $92.5 million when Mar and Until December uh, Guitar Center were tenants in the building. Back in 2016, a $285 million loan was produced by none other than Dutch Bank AG, meant to refinance six floors of the former New York Times building. An additional $85 million in mezzanine debt is also lodged against the property from S.L. Green Realty Corp. and Paramount Group Incorporated. Of course, many New York properties have felt the effects of the pandemic after the coronavirus turned the once-bustling and busy Times Square into a deserted ghost town. However, Kushner's retail building was suffering even before it took a hit from the global pandemic that his father-in-law only served to worsen. As far back as November of 2019, income from rent was falling short of the interest payments owed on the debt. Wells Fargo claims that a month later, the loan was transferred to special servicing due to imminent monetary default. Frankly, it seems the entire Trump empire is rapidly crumbling before our eyes. As uh, as for myself, I can't get enough. And that was Jared Kushner's Times Square, New York property reportedly moved a step closer towards foreclosure by Andrea Thompson from polynews.org for uh, October 23rd, 2022. Okay, and we go back to comicbook.com. And this is called American Horror Story. Mia Farrow Regrets Turning Down Season 1 Role by Jamie Jurok, October 21st, 2022. American Horror Story kicked One, two, off. Kicked, uh, American Horror Story kicked off its 11th season this week, and it's not the only new project from Ryan Murphy. In addition to the ex- executive producing uh, Netflix, Netflix is successful. That Jeffrey Dahmer story is also producing The Watcher for his streaming site. In addition to helming the first and third episodes, the limited series, which is based on the internet uh, urban legend of The Watcher, stars Naomi Watts. Bobby Cannavale, Jennifer Coolidge, Margaret Martindale, and Mia Farrow. Netflix released a video entitled Conversations. Ryan Murphy talked with the women of The Watcher as he revealed he wanted Farrow to appear way back in the first season of American Horror Story. And the Rosemary Babies icon admitted that she regrets turning it down. I've been trying to, I've been trying to work with you since 2010, Murphy explained during the segment via ET Online. When I wrote the pilot of American Horror Story, I won't say what it was, I wrote a part for you and begged your agents to get get it to you. And they were like, Mia doesn't want to work right now. And he went on to thank Pharaoh for making The Watcher, adding, I'm so thrilled that it was so fun to work with you. I'm really sorry I didn't do that. I regretted it, Pharaoh reveals. Yes, I regretted not doing it, and I also jumped at the chance when you said, via our friend Ronan, I got this thing for your mother. She can wear all black and it will be really interesting, and I'm like, sure. Here's how Netflix describes The Watcher. Dean Cannavale and Nora Brannock Watts just purchased their dream home in the idyllic suburb of Westfield, New Jersey. But after putting all of their savings into closing the deal, they soon realize the neighborhood is less than welcoming. There's a kooky older woman named Pearl Farrell and her brother Jasper, Kinney who sneaks into the Brannock's house and hides in their dumbwaiter. There's Karen, Coolidge, the realtor and an old acquaintance of Nora's, who makes them feel like they don't really belong, and nosy neighbors Mitch, Kind, and Mo, Martindale, who don't seem to understand property lines. Their icy welcome quickly turns into full-blown living hell when ominous letters from someone calling themselves The Watcher start arriving. Terrorizing the Brannocks to the breaking point as their neighborhood's sinister secrets come spilling out. The Watcher is now streaming on Netflix. That was American Horror Story, Mia Farrow, Regrets Turning Down Season 1 Role by Jamie Dirac, October 21st, 2022 from ComicBook.com. And now, let's read some articles from JewishJournal.com. And we start with this one. Why the U.S. and the Holocaust matters so much to documentarian Sarah Botstein. Since the U.S. and the Holocaust began production in 2015... Botstein has had a special connection to the content of what would become an acclaimed three-part miniseries, by Brian Fishbach, October 20, 2022. As a producer with Ken Burns' production company, Florentine Films' Sarah Botstein is one of the three director-producers of the new PBS documentary The U.S. and the Holocaust, along with Burns and Lynn Novick. The three have collaborated together since 2001 when they produced the 10-part miniseries Jazz on PBS. Botstein, Burns, and Novak are to to documentaries what Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Pat Riley of Showtime-era Lakers were to the NBA, the gold standard. Since the U.S. and the Holocaust began uh, production in 2015, Botstein has had a special connection to the content of what would become an acclaimed three-part miniseries. Long before the team started work on the series, and decades before Botstein started to work at Florentine Films, the history of the United States in relation to the Holocaust was an ever-present force in her formative years. Botstein's paternal grandparents were Jews living in Eastern Europe during the rise of Nazism in the 1930s. Her paternal grandmother, Anne, born Ania Wisvanskia, came from an upper-middle-class Jewish family along the Russia-Poland border. She relocated to Switzerland while training to become a radiologist. and also had an older brother named Leon, who was one of the organizers of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1943. Leon would tragically be murdered during the uprising. On the other side of that family, Botstein's great-grandfather's sister committed suicide when her children were taken away from her to a death camp. Botstein's paternal grandfather, Charles, was born to a poor family in Odessa, Ukraine. Charles served in the Medical Corps in the Polish Army during the mid-1930s. He and Anne met while in medical school in Zurich and married in 1935. Uh, Together, as World War II began to consume Europe, the two would obtain refugee status in neutral Switzerland, but as foreign Jews, they couldn't uh, obtain Swiss citizenship. Between the rise of Hitler and the end of World War II, it took Botstein's grandparents, Anne and Charles, 14 years to immigrate to the United States. They first filed paperwork in 1935 and were continually told that America's quotas were full until they were finally admitted in 1949 through uh, assistance from the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Even as accomplished doctors, immigrating to the U.S. was a daunting task. Anne and Charles would go on to have four children, one of which was named after Anne's late brother, Leon. In the U.S., Leon Botstein would become a revered symphonic conductor, and since 1975, he has served as president of Bard College in New York's Hudson Valley. With his first wife, Jill, they would have two children, Sarah and Abby. Leon's musical prowess still influences Sarah, as she takes an active role in the music direction of all of the Florentine Films projects she's working on. Sarah, uh, the elder child of Leon and Jill, recalled special memories which growing while growing up with her, her father's parents nearby. I was extremely close to my father's parents. They were like a second set of parents to me, Bostein told the journal. They lived in the Bronx when I was a child. My father was very close and attached to them, and he would stop by and see them on our way in, in and out of the city and on vacations. I often stayed with them. And then my parents divorced in 1979, and my sister Abby was killed tragically in a car accident in 1981. After that, I spent, uh, e- I spent even more time with both gra- my grandparents. So they were a very, very active influence on my young life. And then I went to Barnard, and in my senior year in college, my grandfather got quite sick and died. And my aunt and I spent a huge amount of time taking care of him in his last few months of life. In the U.S. and the Holocaust, family photographs of Botstein's grandparents as young children are woven into the documentary, but not identified. One of the things that I learned in making the film, because there are some of our family photographs in the series, we the filmmakers all decided that if we're going to find archives of communities around the world, and they're related to some of us, that's sort of special for those of us who worked on the film. You don't know who's in the images, so they're are three images of my family in the final cut of the series, and one of them is a picture of my grandmother's family. She's a baby in that in the image. Batsi reflected on how the shortened lives of her great-uncle Leon and great-great-aunt and her children affected her mindset while directing and producing the U.S. and the Holocaust. Both of those, to me, being a part of the uprising and then taking your own life And your children having just been sent to their death are very interesting ways to think about agency, how young Jews thought about what was happening, Botstein said. It's similar to me. One of the more moving scenes in the film, which is one of the last scenes we edited, is the Warsaw Uprising scene, because we learned about the Ringelblum archives while we were recording narration. And that's the incredible material that the Jews in the Warsaw get buried in these milk cans so that they would be remembered. We have a scene in the film about it. And tied to that, in terms of my family, my great-uncle, whom I never knew, but was a legend because he is who my father is named after. And he stood up against the Nazis in just a remarkable way. And then my great-aunt I never knew, and her children, to to think about that and why they made the choices they made. Though they were refugees greatly affected and displaced by the Holocaust, Botstein's paternal grandparents were very much aware of how close they were to being victims. They never thought of themselves as victims, but as profoundly likely to have made it to the U.S. and to have created as optimistic a future as they could for their children and their grandchildren, Botstein said. They're not survivors in the traditional sense. They're witnesses to history. She emphasizes that when presenting history, you have to be very careful with the terms survivor, victim, and witness when describing who got out and why. Her grandparents had friends and extended family who were all three. I don't actually remember a time when I wasn't surrounded by a lot of older Jewish people, some of whom had recently come to America, some of whom had direct relationships to the ghettos, the concentration camps, hiding, survival, and others who, like my father and my grandparents, who were both in medical school in Switzerland during the war, helped to save the relatives that they could and try to get papers, Botstein said. Bostin remembers her grandparents as incredible characters who hosted fun and hilarious family dinners. They spoke a combination of Polish, Russian, and German. Their descendants will call it Bostinese. Her grandfather, Charles, was a hilariously, hilarious, larger-than-life character. When he passed away at age 83 in 1994, the New York Times described him as a pioneer in the use of radiotherapy in the treatment of uterine cancer. Botstein's grandmother, Anne, was deaf in her 40s, but continued practicing medicine. She even sewed a pillow for her granddaughter, Sarah, on nearly every birthday. It comes as no surprise that, uh, before becoming a member of one of the most respected documentary teams in television today, Botstein was exposed to powerful historical documentaries and books in her teens. In particular, she remembers when her father rented the 1985 French 9-hour documentary Shoah by Claude Landsman that features no archival footage. I really remember how profoundly that film affected him and why it was important for him to talk to me about it, Botstein said. I definitely remember reading Anne Frank. I remember my father in particular giving me books by Isaac Bathsheba Singer, Jewish writers and thinkers and hearing names my father knew Hannah Arendt. At Columbia University Barnard College in New York Botstein majored in American Studies. While there she became fascinated in how post-war generations were thinking about American Jewish identity not through history as so much as through literature. She wrote about Saul Bellow's Seize the Day and Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus. After college, Botstein wasn't quite sure she wanted to do to do for a career, so she took a job as an accountant, an account assistant, at a public relations firm that had General Motors as a client. It just so happened that General Motors was then one of the primary underwriters for Ken Burns' PBS documentary dating back to 1984 with the Shakers, Hands to Work, Hearts to God. She was nine when Burns' first PBS documentary, Brooklyn Bridge, was released in 1981. When the Civil War was released in 1980, Botstein remembers everyone in her family and her college watching it. And then, while working for the PR firm representing one of Burns' primary underwriters, Botstein jumped at the chance to meet him. I met Ken and I thought he was just charming and brilliant, Botstein said. And I remember the Civil War was coming out. I was in college, and at that point there was so much written about the use of still photographs to communicate moving images in film. And that was very interesting to me. I thought Burns was terrific. I loved, I loved whenever he had a film coming out. While working in the PR firm, Botstein was dabbling in photography and credits her stepfather Douglas Boz, a photographer, as an influence. Combining that with what she describes as a visual way of thinking about history, Botstein eagerly took advantage of the opportunity to join Burns' team. He was working on the jazz film and they had one associate producer's seat to fill. And he described the job to me as being his wingman, Botstein said. And I remember calling my parents and saying I've got this opportunity. I was living in New York at the time, and they said, don't hesitate, say yes. Unbelievable opportunity. I packed up my Jeep and went to this teeny tiny town in New Hampshire. My friends thought I was totally nuts. I didn't know anybody. It was a total blizzard. I remember getting there, and the first day in the editing room, it was the first day we were editing jazz. The 10-episode, 19-hour document um, uh, miniseries premiered in January of 2020, 2001 to rave reviews, and Botstein knew she had landed in the right career path. Being in the editing room is really an exceptional experience, Botstein said. It's a very open, very collaborative, very intense, very brilliant place to be. And I thought, I am so lucky. How did I ever end up here? I don't know enough about film to have anything to contribute. During the production of jazz, the Florentine Films production team was still cutting on actual film rather than digital. Botstein had to fine-tune her talents at, at splicing pieces of film together to tell a story. She did research on the art and motives of disco. She recalls a steep learning curve to become immersed in the history and catalogs of jazz pioneers Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, and Billie Holiday. After jazz, Ken and Lynn Novick sat down... And I sort of got hitched to Lynn's films and worked on The War with her, Botstein said. Over the next 20 years, they would collaborate on Prohibition, Vietnam, College Behind Bars, and Hemingway. College Behind Bars has a special significance to Botstein, as her husband Max Kenner is the founder of the documentary's focus, the Bard Prison Initiative. Kenner found the BPI as a way to enroll incarcerated women and men in academic programs that culminate in degrees from Bard College. I have an extraordinary husband, Botstein said. Hearing about what he does and being around him is a great joy of my life. They have two children ages 11 and 5. Now with their own family, it's not lost on Botstein for a moment how... Present-day anti-Semitism, xenophobia, and hatred are a scourge in the U.S. that needs to be called out. The U.S. and the Holocaust was originally intended to be released in 2023. But the contentious climate led the filmmakers to release the series this fall. Ken really deserves all the credit for that decision, Botstein said. I think he was watching what was happening in the world and thought the sooner this film gets out for our country's conversion, conversation, uh, the better. Byrne spoke with the journal about the urgency to release the film as soon as possible. We had a conversation with the head of the ADL who reported that the level of anti-Semitic acts are at the level of the 1930s in the United States, Byrne told the journal. There is an urgency to almost every aspect of it. The team collapsed what normally would take them a year into six months so that the US and the Holocaust could be released as soon as possible. In the pre-pandemic years, Botstein and the Florentine Films team collaborated while sitting in a horseshoe-shaped alignment of edit bays and research desks at the Walpool, New Hampshire studios. They have music stands with scripts and work with pencils and different colored pens and lots of sticky notes. Botstein calls it a fairly old-fashioned way for a tiny group to put their heads together. But even when collaborating via Zoom during the pandemic, they made it work. Botstein said that the entire team just uh, brought their A-game in a slightly different way than they would normally do. Ken and I often talk about this, and Jeff, Jeff w- Jeffrey Ward, the lead uh, writer of Burns' films since 1984, too, treading over the same period in history uh, over and over again through a slightly different lens is really interesting, Mottstein said. In so many of our films, we're looking at the 20s, 30s, and the 40s. We've done a film on Hemingway. We've done a film on Prohibition. We've done a film on the Second World War. And here we are again thinking about this period of time. Completely different lens. The journal asked Botstein about the rise in anti-Semitism in the U.S. today, and in particular this month with the release of the U.S. and the Holocaust coinciding with a spike in headlines around around anti-Semitism. The rise of mainstream anti-Semitic rhetoric from powerful and influential people is frightening, Botstein said. America has a long and continuous history of nativism, racism, xenophobia, and anti-Semitism. The current climate shows that this history is not only relevant but instructive and should be a guide and a warning. These are dangerous times that we need to be vigilant. Our film is just to, uh, one reminder of how precious American democracy is. The Florentine Films team is currently producing a six-part series on the American Revolution and a project on President Lyndon B. Johnson's life and presidency. Currently, The U.S. and the Holocaust can be streamed on the PBS website, PBS app, and on all streaming devices. That was Why the U.S. and the Holocaust Matters So Much to Documentarian Sarah Botstein by Brian Fishback, October 20, 2022. Okay, and now this next one is called On the Miracle of Jewish Survival. When commemorating the Jewish tragedy of the Holocaust, we sh- should we not also commemorate the Jewish miracle of survival? By David Suisa, October twenty, twenty twenty-two. The number of 6 million has a singular resonance for Jews and people around the world. It is the number of Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust, a number that forever lives in a past we dare not forget. Over the past several decades, billions have been invested to building memorials to this unspeakable tragedy. When we enter these memorials, our attention is naturally drawn to death. How could it not be? We're confronted with the dizzying notion of six million lives who were extinguished, each with countless stories and substories that will be told and retold for generations. So the Holocaust is, above all, a story of death. But in the grand picture of Jewish history, it is also a story of people who refused to wilt away, of people who in the midst of despair doubled down on life. That's why it may be time to ask this question. When commemorating the Jewish tragedy of the Holocaust, should we also not commemorate the Jewish miracle of survival? The Jewish tradition draws connections between the extremities of life and death. The memories of the dead nourish the lives of the present. The lessons and the wis- and wisdom we gain from the departed help our lives move forward. Death can strengthen our will to live. When I think of the six million Jews who perished in the Shoah, I can't help think- thinking of six million Jews who are thriving today in Israel, or six million Jews who are thriving in America. I can't separate the millions who died yesterday from the millions who are thriving today. If anything, I see the thriving as our response to the dying. I can easily visualize Holocaust memorials adding a wing that commemorates Jewish survival. Before leaving these memorials, visitors must be reminded that at our lowest moment, the Jews chose life above all, that from the ashes of our darkest days, we chose to move forward with the redeeming light of life. The universal lesson of the Holocaust is that evil exists and must be eradicated. That will always be true. But a larger even deeper lesson is that life has the power to transcend and redeem death. If a motto of the Holocaust is never forget, a motto of Judaism is always forward. As important as it is to remember, it is even more important to act and move forward. Living with purpose is memory in action. It's astonishing to think that a few short years after the ultimate symbol of death devastated the Jews, the ultimate symbol of Jewish revival, Israel, was born. With its noisy and vibrant society, Israel celebrates life in all of its complicated and myriad ways. Indeed, Israel may be the most powerful Jewish answer to the Holocaust, a reminder that the best way to honor the dead is to double down on life. A great example of doubling down on life is the subject of our cover story this week, Sarah Botstein, co-producer of the acclaimed new PBS documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Botstein's extended family had a, has a long, tragic, and complicated history with the Holocaust. She tells our writer, Brian Fishbeck, of her surviving paternal grandparents. They never thought of themselves as victims, but as profoundly lucky to have made it to the U.S. and to have created as optimistic a future as they could for their children and their grandchildren. Botstein is a recipient of this optimistic future, a living testament to the Jewish will to live and to get the most out of life. In fact, another documentary she worked on with Ken Burns has nothing to do with death and and everything to do with life, the 10-part miniseries Jazz on PBS. One documentary tells a chapter of a dark side and keeps the memories of the six million alive. Another celebrates human creativity through the music of jazz. One honors the dead, the other honors... Of the artists. When Botstein worked on the US and the Holocaust, she was leaning on the hard primal themes of death and survival. When she worked on jazz, she she leaned on the liberating themes of the human imagination on the human capacity to create art and beauty. We need both. The six million we lost in the Holocaust don't want us to forget them and we should never forget them. But by responding to their deaths by elevating life, we give meaning to their tragedy. Ultimately, our best revenge against evil, our best response to those we lost, is to redeem life by creating beautiful memories that will conquer the dark ones. That was on the Miracle of Jewish Survival by David Suisa, October 20, 2022. Okay, and this next one is called The Sin of Busyness, Finding Peace in the Quiet. Beneath the surface I recognize my busyness, taking care of my kids, clients, friends, community, and the Jewish world is a brilliant ruse to constantly feeling feeding my to constantly feed my insecurity by Audrey Jacobs, october twentieth, twenty twenty two. Goodbye, Oaxaca. I wasn't supposed to be here, even though I've always dreamed of visiting. I knew if I came it would trigger the pain of my failed marriage and everything I lost eight years ago. But I shouldn't attach painful memories to places. If I do, I let the shadows of my past keep me from living in the present. Last Thursday morning was the day after Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. I had a ticket to Barbados to visit a soul sister and attend her conference. At 4.30 a.m. I learned the flights were so delayed and infrequent and I'd miss the event. I'd taken time off from work and now I had time and credit to fly elsewhere. So the morning after fasting and cleansing my soul, how did I react? I thought of the sins I had atoned for, and I asked God for forgiveness. I repented for all the sins listed in the Mazur prayer book, and then it got personal. I repented for something that isn't recognized as a sin, but plagues me, busyness. Sloth is a sin in most most traditions, but it's not considered a sin to be busy doing versus simply being. Well, maybe it is for Buddhists, but not for Jews. Beneath the surface, I recognize my busyness. Taking care of my kids, clients, friends, community, and the Jewish world is a brilliant ruse to constantly feed my insecurity. I am only worthy as the last mitzvah I performed or achieved. I accomplished or achievement I accomplished. If I am simply still or quiet, I cease to exist. Or worse yet, I am still alive, alone with my thoughts and the childhood traumas that excavated my bottomless pit of need to be loved. Miraculously, before the sun rose that morning, I made an impetuous decision to slow down and face my shadows in the most colorful, magical, artistic, delicious place in the world, Oaxaca, Oaxaca, Mexico. For me, Oaxaca represents lost dreams. When I was married, my husband and I shared a deep love of folk art. On our honeymoon, we went to San Miguel Allende, Mexico, a World Heritage Site and International Artist Colony. We spent time with artists and began our art collection. I fell in love with Mexico, the quiet dignity of the people, the music and dancing, the rich heritage, the intense intricate colors of the alebrijes, the wood-carved brightly painted spirit animals, and the 34 ingredients in my favorite recipe, mole sauce. During our marriage, we raised three beautiful boys, built careers, and gave to the community. We dreamed of going back to Mexico, especially Oaxaca, to discover the various villages, each famous for its own type of art, wood carvings, ceramics, and weaving. We never made it. Eighteen years after the first trip south of the border, I walked away from my marriage and a bright, colorful house full of folk art treasures from Mexico. We had a large Brady Bunch-style staircase with a giant bookshelf along the stairs. Every other shelf was filled with alabrijas. Our sons would sit on the steps and play with the wood-carved sculptures, giving them names and narrate imaginary worlds. When my family fell apart, I physically left with only my grandmother's Shabbat candlesticks and my clothes. I told myself I only cared about my kids. Losing my home and all the art in it didn't matter. But subconsciously, I could hear the alabrejas on the bookshelf screaming, Don't forget us. We love you. We bring you joy. You'll need us when you're alone and sad. I never saw them again. Until this week, when I met their makers. I arrived on Oaxaca with no plan. No place to stay, No friends there. No list where to where to go. I felt free and terrified. Not scared something bad would happen, but scared to let go of control. I trusted in God and the magic Oaxaca would reveal. And it did. I stumbled upon a beautiful, modest apartment facing an exquisite interior courtyard. It felt like home. I made made lifelong friends, moved slowly, visited small villages, had extended times of watching artists make masterpieces. I took the bus, got lost, I lingered, I, I didn't look at my phone. I didn't accomplish anything. I felt at peace. Each, each day, I experienced an incredible once-in-a-lifetime moment that pulled me out of my ego and into the beauty of connecting with strangers through music, dance, food, and art. A full symphony orchestra performing for locals in front of a simple church in the center of the Tilakula Market. A wild parade with a full band, giant spinning balloons, and people in colorful costumes dancing simply to celebrate a couple's anniversary. A meal featuring a tasting of five different moles served with a detailed description of the ingredients and the stories of the regions they were created. A young ceramicist in San Bartolo, Kajotepic, who spent hours using her grandmother's traditional techniques to make a mind-blowing contemporary art piece. For the first few days I felt emboldened, I manifested my Oaxaca dream, but by the fourth day I emotionally crumbled. I went to the village of San Martin Cahete to meet the artists who made the alabrijas animal figures. At first I was in awe of how each element of the creation process has been preserved for decades. All supplies come from the local region. The wood is from the copal tree and is hand carved with classic tools. The brightly colored paint is from organic local sources that is mixed fresh every few days. They use and recycle every source. I was honored to chat with the masters and their students. They shared their creative freedom and pride in their work. Then when I wandered into their gallery and saw a collection of alabrijas all together, it took me back to my marital home. I was overwhelmed with sadness, tears streaming down my face. The alabrijas called out to me, Don't cry, we've never left you. We still love you. Bring us home. I sat on the bench lost in time admiring their whimsical nature while grief washed over me. Could I replace what I lost? Is it better to walk away and never look back? Maybe I haven't bought more alabrijas because they represent the past and I believe I can only look forward. Maybe I haven't remarried because I believe I had one shot and I blew it. But ignoring my past and filling my life with busyness doesn't fill the void. Fortunately, I have my sons and my life is full of joy, friends, meaning, and purpose. But busyness has not brought love nor peace. To stare into the void and believe that love and peace is possible, I choose to bring home one alebrije. I I looked at hundreds, waiting for one to speak to me with silence. Finally, I was drawn to an owl, flying in a shape I'd never seen. I gently picked it up and immediately felt at peace. The student who had been my guide quietly appeared next to me. Do you know why the owl chose you? The elabrihas are spirit guides, as they were depicted in the 20-day cycle in the Zapotec calendar. When the owl chooses you, it means it's time to face your shadows. The owl belongs to those who find wisdom in silence. Listen to the owl. Thank you, Oaxaca, and all your magic to gently guide me into my shadows. Now I begin the work to find peace, love, and forgiveness in the quiet. Heading back into my life. It will be hard not to get distracted by, by the busyness, but I can embrace quiet on the twenty-five hours of the Sabbath of my tradition, and each day I can sit quietly with my shadows and find wisdom in the silence. That was The Sin of Busyness, Finding Peace in the Quiet by Audrey Jacobs, October 20, 2022. Audrey Jacobs is a financial advisor and has three sons. Alright, and here is this one. Anti-Semitism finds a new home with the American branch of the International Law Association. It is dangerous when anti-Semites use the imprimatur and gravitas of a once respectable institution to mainstream hate and lies. By Mark Goldfelder, uh, October 20, 2022. The prominent American branch of the International Law Association has apparently been hijacked by the advocates of modern anti-Semitism. Sadly, illustrious New York law firms, the New York Bar Association, and Fordham Law School are among their unwitting enablers. From October 20 to October 22, 2022, the ILA's American branch will hold its annual meeting in New York City. This year, The program includes a panel dedicated to the demonstrable lie that the Jewish state is racist, guilty of the crime against humanity of apartheid, and therefore deserving of criminal prosecution and economic ruin. For the past month, the online program described uh, the annual meeting on racism and the crime of apartheid in international law this way. Today, in contexts across the world, from Myanmar's abuses of Rohingya Muslims in the Rakhine State to the Israeli authorities' systematic oppression of Palestinians to the Chinese government's actions in Xinjiang against uh, Uyghurs and other Turkish, Muslims, human rights organizations, UN bodies, experts, and scholars have concluded that the crime of apartheid is being committed with impunity." In just one paragraph, the authors did their very best to casually lump Israel in with some of the worst human rights abusers in the world. According to the official program, the opening uh, the opening plenary and reception is taking place at the New York City Bar Association. The, centen- the Centennial Gala is hosted by the law firm of White and Case LL- LLP, the opening reception by De Beauvoir and Plimpton LLP, and the panel itself by Fordham Law School. The, panel lists, the panel's list of participants is a who's who of Israel-bashing advocates, and nobody from the other side. This stands in a marked contrast to the promise of the ILA to exemplify a diverse and inclusive community of individuals working or interested in international law, the promise of legal practitioners to hear and evaluate all sides fairly, and the promise of the legal academy to ensure students and faculty are educated, not brainwashed. Brainwashed they will be, however. The panel includes a UN official, E. Tende Akumi, who charges Israel with vaguely defined international crimes at every chance she gets, sometimes working with an Israeli-designated terrorist organization to do so. Her UN anti-racism mission has a well-documented blind spot When it comes to advocating for racial and ethnic justice for Jews, and in 2021, Akumi herself signed a wildly anti-Semitic letter expressing outrage that UCLA dared to condemn anti-Semitic attacks in the United States during a massive uptick of such incidents without also condemning Jewish supremacists in Israel. The panel also includes an academic, Victor Katan, who claims that only the non-existent state of Palestine has sovereign title over Jerusalem and has encouraged the Palestinians to file claims against the United States at the International Criminal Court for daring to move the US Embassy to Israel's capital city. But the highlight is probably Omar Shakur, an NGO activist and extremist who has publicly supported and defended murderous terrorists and anti Semites. For years, He advocated and worked for the anti-Semitic boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, and then, when Israel revoked his work visa for engaging in boycott activities, lied and claimed that he had not done so. Since then, he has worked hard to mainstream the the thoroughly debunked Human Rights Watch report that denied Israel's legitimacy as a Jewish state, dismissed its security concerns, and accused Israel of, of, of apartheid. Lest you be concerned that a neutral moderator might ask these folks some hard-hitting questions for the benefit of those watching who may not know better, rest assured that the rabid anti-Israel spell will not be broken. The moderator is May El-Sadani, a human rights attorney who, among other things, has demanded that the New York Bar Association rescind an invitation to Danny Dayan, the former Consul General of Israel in New York, falsely accusing him of racism, apartheid, and other criminal activity. She has also accused the United States of collaborating with Israel to cover up human rights violations. For the record, because facts matter, apartheid involves an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. Israeli Arabs enjoy full equal rights and hold positions in the highest levels of every branch of government. Israel does does distinguish between citizens and non-citizens, as does every country. But that has nothing to do with race, which is why Amnesty International made the same claim of apartheid a few months back. They had to literally invent a new definition that was not based on race in order to play a game of anti-Semitic double standard gacha with the Jewish state. It is dangerous when anti-Semites use the imprimatur and gravitas of a once respected institutions to mainstream hate and lies. This is particularly so in a dangerous environment of rising anti-Semitic hatred and an inextricable bond between accusing Israel of apartheid and anti-Semitism. We let these claims go unchallenged at our peril. Because study after study has shown that this kind of inflammatory discriminatory anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist rhetoric is actually dangerous and leads directly to the kinds of anti-Semitic attacks against innocent Jewish people and institutions that we are seeing around the world. Late last week, the law firms in question and Fordham Law School began to receive inquiries about why they would host and celebrate such a gathering. In response, the ABILA did two things. First, the program description in the online brochure was reworded, so it did not explicitly accuse Israel of international crimes. Second, they added an additional speaker ostensibly to balance to, the pa- to bring balance to the panel. The speaker they added, however, is Mia Swart. As an Al Jazeera reporter, was done fawning interviews with Omar Shakir, calling out Israeli and, uh, apartheid. And just last week, tweeted in support of another event, in which the leader of an Israeli-designated terror organization gave a talk on apartheid and Israel's assault on Palestinian civil society. So much for offering a different perspective. These changes were clearly made so that the host could have plausible deniability. They don't have it. They know exactly what's going on at their expense and at the expense of all the attendees who deserve better. That was Anti Semitism Finds a Home with the American Branch of the International Law Association, by Mark Goldfeder, October 20th, 2022. Dr. Mark Goldfeder, Esquire, is an international lawyer and director of the National Jewish Advocacy Center. All right, here's this one A Day in Jewish Los Angeles, by Tabby Raphael, October 19th, 2022. It started Sunday morning when dozens of teenage Jewish boys set up folding tables on Pico Boulevard and outside a few residential garages and began selling fragrant lulavim and entrogym to Jewish men who, let's face it, waited until the last minute to buy the necessary staples for Sukkot. Or perhaps they waited on purpose to ensure they bought the freshest possible etrogim. Either way, the customers were lucky if they discovered an empty parking space half a mile away from the young entrepreneurs' folding tables. Not one, not one to be outdone by the procrastination of others, I foolishly waited until Sunday morning to visit a local kosher Persian supermarket, which due to the upcoming Sukkot holiday would be closed for the following two days. I observed the halachot of Jewish holy days and wouldn't have to be able to spend money shopping at another store. And besides, the kosher markets are the only places where I can buy kosher street cheese for my kids. Who squeal at the sight of it and scoff at my gourmet Persian delicacies. Did I mention that in Los Angeles in 2022, a bag of kosher string cheese cost $17.99? I would have been enraged, but a few minutes earlier, I had picked up a small package of kosher brie cheese for myself for a whopping $14.99. I I know the cows who procured such cheese. Pers- I don't know the cows who procured such cheese personally, but given such prices, those bovines better have been fit than been, been fed great grass imported from Switzerland. With the Sukkot holiday beginning in a few hours, the masses in the supermarket were overwhelming, but nothing could have prepared me for the 25-minute wait in line at the cashier. In fact. The line in which I stood, the short line, wrapped around the aisle of artificial Israeli juices and past the grass-fed ground beef, undoubtedly fed with grass from Switzerland. With such long lines, tensions were invariably running high, and one irate man began yelling loudly at a supermarket manager when he wasn't allowed to return an item. All of that screaming made some customers palpably uncomfortable, given that we were about to begin a time of the year known as Ziman Simchatinu, the season of our joy. Fortunately, an older Persian woman at another register ended the awkwardness of that man's incessant yelling by loudly demanding to know why one bunch of tarragon cost $4.59. The woman was my mother. A few minutes later, as I helped my mother back her gigantic car out of the tight supermarket parking lot, only to hear the justifiably aggravated honks of other drivers, I realized I wouldn't trade such madness, boys blocking sidewalks with their lulav and etrog tables, the chaos of packed kosher markets, and yes, my mother, for anything. Sometimes, I really love LA. Back in my own car, my son asked me if, like his Oscar Nazi teacher, he should say esrog rather than an etrog. I calmly smiled and responded that we're Mizrahim. Etrog is appropriate for us. When my son wasn't satisfied with my response and threw a tantrum, questioning life because his teacher had used the wrong word, I promised myself a shot of Estrog liquor inside my host's sukkah later that night. Later that day, I faced bumper-to-bumper traffic at the worst intersection of the city. It's the worst for me, anyway. Because it's home not to not one, but two disturbing giant billboards advertising the hit AMC show American Horror Story, or AHS. Each time I drive past those adjacent billboards, I find a way to distract my small children in the back seat from looking out the window, but I can only make funny faces and cross my eyes for so long. Eventually, my face hurts. Various frightening AHS imagery has been plastered on billboards in the area for years. And for years, I've wondered whether parents, particularly some Orthodox Jewish parents who don't even allow televisions in their homes, have ever made formal complaints about these billboards. But I don't think anyone has the power to have them removed. As the hours passed and Sukkot approached, I drove to the local dry cleaners and watched as the kosher markets and many other Jewish-owned businesses, including jewelry and watch shops, restaurants and bakeries, closed for the holiday. There's something beautiful about watching a black hat-clad Jewish man frantically run home carrying a bouquet of roses. Either he was trying to get home in time for Sukkot, or he truly loves his wife, and fears slightly for his life if those roses don't arrive. That evening, the sight of countless little outdoor huts, flimsy, but illuminating with the soft light of open hearts and fairy string lights, was nothing short of magical. As my family and I walked past Suka after Suka, my friend my kids saw other homes with mezuot on the doorposts and fake dangling ghosts and other Halloween decorations on the front lawns. When they asked if some Jewish families celebrate Halloween, I told them that's the beauty of America even if our family uses pumpkins for stews rather than lawn decor. Incidentally, my son was still angry at his Esrog welding teacher. Inside our host's wonderful sukkah for dinner during the first night of Sukkot, I loudly declared how blessed we were to have such fine Southern California weather so that we could truly enjoy being inside the sukkah where other Jewish communities are currently burdened with heavy rains, winds, and even snow. Then I proceeded to pour nearly three-quarters of a bottle of children's lice repellent over my head and body, hoping to prevent mosquito bites inside the sukkah. In my defense, that bottle was the closest thing i found to bug repellent as I shamelessly and secretly went through the medicine cabinet in my host's home. It's a little-known fact that L.A. has claimed first place on Oregon's annual Top 50 Mosquito Cities list for the second year in a row. Sometimes I really hate L.A. The next morning offered an incredible contrast. Countless Jews holding lulavim and etrojim, pushing strollers or swinging bags of wine and desserts as they walked to the synagogue, home or the sukkahs of their host for meals. As I watched these people, my people, the people of the book, eat, drink, laugh, pray in these fragile sukkahs, I realized how little control man has over any turns of events. And Jews in particular, seem more vulnerable to the whims of others. And that day, as countless Jews and non-Jews walked through the busy L.A. streets past the incessant smog cars, buses and smog cars, buses and uh, one strange and that one strange Uber-eats food delivery robot at, food, at foot level, they were all within eye- eyesight of the giant stickers plastered over two separate bull billboards at some of the busiest intersections in the city. One of those giant stickers on the billboards were written with written the words Zionist Jews Control America. Sometimes I really don't know how I feel about LA That was a Day in Jewish Los Angeles by Tabby Raphael, october 19, twenty two. And Tebby Raphael is an award winning LA based writer, speaker, and civic act and civic action activist. Follow her on Twitter at Tabby Raphael. Alright, here's this one. Hate Lies Partisanship by Karen Lehrman uh, Block, October 19, 2022. If you're an honest person, you did not think this tweet was anti-Semitic. You did not think that he think that he wrote this tweet because he hates or wants to genocide Jewish people. This does not represent the beginning of a Holocaust. That's if you're an honest person, you'll admit that. Candace Owens Dear Candace, As an honest person, I must say that the entire Kanye West imbroglio, I was most surprised by your condescending, gaslighting defense of the the rapper formerly known as Kanye West's indefensible hate. It was just a defense. It wasn't just a defense. It was an attack on Jews for having the gall to stand up for ourselves. As an honest person, I was deeply offended by the fact that you thought you could tell us what we should and should not be offended by days before you drop a documentary called The Greatest Lie Ever Told, George Floyd and the Rise of BLM. It appears that lying about blatant anti-Semitism is okay for you. As an honest person, your mocking comment about the Holocaust was as offensive as your admiration of Hitler in 2019. If Hitler just wanted to make Germany great and have things run well, okay fine. The problem is that he had dreams outside of Germany. As an honest person, I thought you were on good track in distinguishing real racism from manipulated racism, but after gaslighting Jews, how can anyone trust you? Your new film is described as a cautionary tale of what can happen when we blindly follow without critical thinking, critically thinking, and yet you want the world to blindly follow your skewed view of anti-Semitism. As an honest person, I know that West's tweet was indeed dangerous. As Hillel Newar tweeted, the last time someone went uh, death con 3 on the Jews, six million of us were murdered. Not a week later, he fumed on the podcast Drink Champs that he was used to getting screwed by the Jewish media and blamed Jewish Zionists for pretty much everything. Jewish people have owned the black voice. As an honest person, I was equally disturbed by Tucker Carlson's editing Out West comments about Jews. Jews don't have the ability to make anything on their own. They are born into money. He also wished that he had taught his kids to celebrate Hanukkah because it would come with financial engineering. Why would a journalist like Carlson believe he has the right to manipulate the truth precisely what he accuses the left of doing? As an honest person, I thought your line, it's like you cannot even say the word Jewish without people getting upset, was more telling. At a time when attacks against Jews are at an all-time high. When anti-Semitism has returned to being an acceptable hatred on both the left and the right, that line could only have been said by someone dishonest or perhaps anti-Semitic herself. As an honest person, I now wonder about your beliefs regarding black Hebrew Israelites and whether you, like West, have ties to Louis Farrakhan. As an honest person, I have been equally disturbed by the far-right's unequivocal defense of you, West and Carlson. We all know that the reaction would be quite the opposite if the three of you were on the left. As an honest person, I know that when the right downplays or rationalizes anti-Semitism as it has done with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, it becomes a mirror image of the left, protecting the indefensible and silencing dissent, all for the sake of partisanship. As an honest person, I know that we're never going to be able to address any issues on this hyperpartisan environment. Hate needs to be depoliticized, and I would have thought that you, of all people, would know that. Anti-Semitism, like racism, is not a competitive sport. As an honest person, I do wonder whether you understand that insinuating that Jews are dishonest is one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes. So, my question for you is, are you an honest, principled person, or does partisanship override both? That was Hate Lies Partisanship, by Karen Lehrmann Block. Uh, October 19, 2022. Karen Le- uh, lerman Bloke is the editor-in-chief of White Rose magazine. And we got this one. LA's broken politics. When three members of the city council and an influential local union leader were caught on audio tape expressing a series of hateful ethnic slurs toward their political rivals, Angelinos were put in a potentially difficult test. By Dan Schnur, October 19, 2022. In the struggle for civil rights and racial justice, it turns out that hating Donald Trump is the easy part. But the city of Los Angeles has been roiled by a much more complicated controversy regarding race relations in the most demographically diverse community in the history of our planet. When three members of the city council and an influential local union leader were caught on audio tape expressing a series of hateful ethnic slurs toward their political rivals, Angelenos were put in a potentially difficult test. The four power brokers caught talking about how to apportion council districts according to a system of racial spoils that would benefit their own communities were all of Latino descent. While most of us have become sadly accustomed to racially charged insults being hurled at members of underrepresented minority groups, the fact that these epithets came from leaders of a historically marginalized community added a new and knotty twist. Will Los Angeles hold these transgressors accountable with the same venomous a, a- venomance as if the bigotry had come from a more expected source? To their credit, the people of Los Angeles did not flinch from their responsibility. Council President Nuri Martinez and Labor Federation President Ron Herrera quickly resigned, and Council Members Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo seemed likely to follow before too long. Their personal and political biographies did not protect them from widespread condemnation and revulsion. Not all of our political leaders have met these challenges nearly as impressively. While Senator Alex Padilla led a parade of elected officials, including President Biden, in calling for the council member's ouster, California Governor Gavin Newsom was conspicuous in that his criticism did not include a call for the members to step down. Mayor Eric Garcetti did call for them to resign, but has kept an extremely low profile as a leaderless city council has careened through its first week since Martinez's departure. Garcetti may be playing a key behind-the-scenes role during this uh, local government crisis, but his lack of visibility has been noticeable during this critical time. The mayor may also think that since he will be leaving office in a matter of weeks, he no longer has the ability to rally the public toward a common set of goals and a a recommitment to civil unity. I would disagree. After a day's hesitation, Both mayoral candidates did call for the council member's departure, and both voiced the necessary words about reconciliation and healing. But Karen Bass and Rick Caruso sounded as if the city's most harrowing public challenge in a generation was simply a talking point for their respective campaigns. Both quickly repackaged the crisis as another proof point in their existing narratives. Bass as an experienced community organizer, and Caruso as a can-do outsider, and both rushed to position themselves as the leader whose past experience could make things right. Both Bass Bass and Caruso said all the right things, neither truly seized the moment. Which leaves it to the rest of us to figure out how to piece a broken city back together. Although Martinez did make a passing reference to Jewish interests, including a familiar slur, it would be easy for our community to watch from the sidelines as black and brown leaders try to repair the damage. As a privileged older white man, I'll admit some uncertainty about whether there is a useful role for me in these efforts at all. But I certainly hope there is. And so should you. We are living through one of the most exciting experiments in human history to see if an unprecedented diversity of peoples can overcome our differences and work together toward common, toward common objectives. The lesson I've learned over the last two weeks is that we are much further from that goal than I originally thought we were. Which means there is work to be done, and the Jewish community here needs to be part of the solution. There was once a time when we played an important role in these efforts, but that was many years ago. The question now is whether we decide to step up again. That was L.A.'s Broken Politics by Dan Schnur, October 19, (coughs) 2025. Dan Schnur is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. Join Danforth's weekly webinar, Politics in the Time of Coronavirus, www.lawac.org, on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Okay, let's go to the Marketplace section of JewishJournal.com. And as usual, to reserve your Marketplace at Space, call 213-368-1661. Space reservation and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursday. So we go with this one. Mount Sinai, Hollywood, rarely available, one plot in Garden of Moriah, 1, space 2, lot 1172. Asking price, $24,000 or best offer. Sinai price, 26000 Call or text 818-439-8586. Alright, we go to this one. Mount Sinai Memorial Park, Hollywood Hills, single plot for sale in sold-out section of Moses, map 11, lot 7447, space 3. Asking price, $20,000. Uh, $10,000 10, transfer fee included. At uh, t- a time of purchase in 2007, $980 was deposited in Endowment Care, an endowment, an endowment care Fund. Sinai price is 23000 plus deed and document fees. Call 714-801-5879. We have this one. Mount Sinai, Hollywood, Gardens of Ramah, sold out location. One double plot for sale. Map number 28, lot 6587, unit 3. Asking $32,500, transfer and endowment included. Call 310-387-2262. Let's go to this one. Mount Sinai, Hollywood Hills, single plot for sale in sold-out level location in uh, Gardens of Ramah, Map E, Lot 6411-3A. Asking price, $18,500. Includes endowment and transfer fee. Sinai price, 20000 Call 818-882-2300. Uh, email us, UrielRossoff at yahoo.com. And we have this one, Hillside Memorial Park, one plot for sale in court of judges downstairs, sold out location and easy access. Hillside price, $10,085. Asking price, $9,500. Includes transfer fee and endowment. Call 818-486-7633. And let's throw in this last one here, Mount Sinai Memorial Park, Hollywood Hills, Two double-depth plots in sold-out location of Garden of Blessings, map 4, lot 1311 space 2, A and B. Asking price, $42,000. Transfer and endowment fee included. Call 213-200-3821. And folks, it looks like that will just about do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. And so remember, for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Whatever it is regarding the entertainment world, the world of, uh, of politics, international, state, uh, national, or even in the entertainment biz, or even in the rare occurrences in sports find it all right here until next time everybody this is your reader and host mark braun shalom and of course as always peace